Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm talking to Dr Susanna Wheeler about a case of anxiety and depression using a lifestyle medicine approach. Susanna is originally from Slovakia, but has called Aotearoa New Zealand her home for almost 20 years. She graduated from the University of Otago in 2009, initially training in psychiatry, but moving on to general practice to try and get a whole person approach in both preventative and holistic care. During this time, she developed a passion for treating lifestyle-related chronic disease, and she is a qualified international board certified lifestyle medicine physician. She has her own lifestyle medicine clinic, Zyveo Health, in Dunedin. She now solely focuses on preventing, treating, and reversing chronic disease and promoting well-being. Welcome back to the podcast, Susanna. So Susanna, we're going to discuss a case. Rachel is a 42-year-old European woman. She is immaculately groomed, but looks exhausted. She is in a hurry because she has a work meeting on straight after this consultation. She is requesting sleeping pills. We often get a lot of clues from a thorough history. So what would you like to know from Rachel? Well, obviously, I would cover uh, everything that any other uh, doctor in this situation would. So I would try and elicit as much detail as possible about her symptoms and about her history. So Rachel reports that her symptoms are exhausting and challenging, uh, but she's still able to perform her professional and parental duties really well. She has a history of mild to moderate depression with several relapses over the past 10 years or so, and particularly in the context of heightened stress levels. She has been on an SSRI on and off, currently not taking any SSRI, but she does take her husband's sleeping pills over the weekend to get some sleep. She becomes tearful when talking about her symptoms and her history, but gives no reason for safety concerns. In terms of her social history, she works at a major company as an executive officer and is married and has two school-aged children. So, Susanna, the lifestyle medicine approach is slightly different to what we do in general practice, but along the same sort of principles. Tell us about the lifestyle medicine principles when thinking about Rachel, please. There are many different ways one can use to assess all the aspects of lifestyle that are known to affect well-being. There's this one that I have been using quite a lot lately, and I really like it because it's nice, short, and covers everything. I find it's a really comprehensive and a really great tool for screening. Uh, It was actually introduced to me by a colleague, Catherine Gray from Hawke's Bay. So thank you, Catherine. But I did adapt it a little bit to uh, suit my own style. And I find that it's really good uh, because it can actually be fitted into a normal 15-minute long general practice consultation. So it's an acronym SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E. So starting with S, uh, this covers sleep. Sleep is a really good, non-threatening way of approaching the topic of lifestyle. 
most people are quite happy to talk to their doctor about their sleep. And in fact, in Rachel's case, uh, it's her presenting symptoms. So it's an obvious place to start. And so Rachel reports that she's tossing and turning all night, can't stop her mind from worrying and ruminating. Then I would move on to H. So that stands for happiness. And here I would call cover emotional and mental wellness. Relationships, um, as this is a surrogate marker of perceived support and connectedness. And I would also assess her level of perceived stress. This includes social, home, finances, work, and so on. I would like to emphasize the word perceived here. It doesn't really matter what I think, how well she's supported. If she doesn't feel supported or doesn't feel happy, that's what really matters here. This is the patient-centered approach. So I could ask, for example, do you feel happy? How do you feel in yourself or how is your mood? And then in terms of stress, I would ask her to rate her stress level from zero to 10, zero being not stressed at all, 10 being as stressed as it gets. And then I would ask her if there are any, any particular areas in her life that are causing her to feel stressed. And Rachel disclosed that her mood has been low most of the time for the past a couple of months, with lots of worries about everything. She feels tense all the time, but particularly at night. And the particular stressor for her is her work, which has been undergoing major restructuring, and she actually was made to fire some people, which has been causing her a lot of worries and ruminations. So then I'm moving on to A in my acronym. A stands for alcohol, but here I would also cover tobacco and other substances that people can use for various reasons. And here I would also cover other habits that don't involve substances, but are commonly used to cope uh, with emotions or boredom, such as overeating, for example. So I would probably start with an open question. For example, how do you cope with stress or difficult emotions? Or I could specifically ask about alcohol, tobacco, uh, recreational substances and behavior, depending on the situation. Now, Rachel disclosed that she has a glass of wine uh, when she comes home from work on weekdays and never more. So that's well within the recommended safe range. But she's binging on chocolate, biscuits and crackers, especially after her kids uh, go to bed. So now I'm moving on to P of my acronym. This stands for physical. And here I cover physical health and physical activity. And I take physical observations. Uh, so blood pressure, heart rate, weight and BMI if I have time and if the patient is happy to do that. And I would also cover any odd physical symptoms that haven't been mentioned. Uh, in Rachel's case, uh, I would particularly ask about any digestive symptoms or any pain, because these often go hand in hand with anxiety and depression. Then moving on to physical activity, I never use the word exercise when talking about activity, as it has been shown in studies to be quite threatening to people and puts them into defensive mode. 
not everyone likes exercise. I ask about movement. So, for example, I could ask, do you do any activities that involve movement of any kind? And depending on the person, I could then give them examples such as, you know, gardening, dancing, walking the dog or active play with your kids. Then the next tier of questions um, assesses um, the amount of moderate to vigorous activity they do. So the uh, guidelines are 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous activity. I'm not going to use those words again. I want it to be friendly to the patient. So I could ask something like, how many days a week do you do a physical activity that makes you feel out of breath or sweating? And then I would ask how long and how often do they do it? So that's enough to assess, you know, whether or not their heart rate has gone up enough to be qualified as a moderate activity. Now, in Rachel's case, her observations are normal. Her BMI is 32, so that puts her in the obese range. Uh, and um, I also noticed that she put on six kilos in the past year. She has a gym membership, but hasn't been for at least six months. As it's as is always exhausted, and for the same reason doesn't do much at all. In fact, she called herself a couch potatoes that sits there and eats biscuits. Now, in my acronym again, I'm moving on to eating habits. Again, I would not ask what's your diet like. This hardly ever yields a meaningful answer. Instead, I would consider as, asking something like. Can you talk me through your typical day in terms of foods? When and how you eat them, you can start with breakfast. Specifically, I would also ask about any use of stimulants. So things like coffee, tea, energy drinks, and other stimulant beverages. I don't know about the rest of New Zealand, but um, bioactive cacao is really in in Dunedin, <laughs> and um, it's actually a significant cardiovascular stimulant. Then I would also specifically ask about soft drinks, fruit juices, and any other flavored uh, drinks, such as sports drinks, which are commonly believed to be healthy and good for people, which is not necessarily the case. Also, I would specifically ask about snacking, sweet and savory snack foods, muesli bars and other bars, biscuits, crackers, chips, and other snack food. And of course, I would uh, cover treats such as confectionery, baked goods, dairy desserts, and so on. And if not covered in my A question, grouped with alcohol, I would also assess for any hedonic eating behavior. So eating when not hungry, either out of boredom, when stressed, when dealing with difficult emotions. And I would also ask about cravings and binge eating. Now, Rachel reported that she often skips breakfast and lunch and eats lots of packaged food on the go, such as muesli bars, to get her through the day because she runs from meeting to meeting. Dinner, she really makes a good effort to feed her family well because this is really important to her. 
So she cooks it herself and it always is a healthy meal that includes lots of vegetables and um, mostly also some meat. She says that she craves sweets and refined carbs, especially after kids go to bed. And this causes her a lot of worries. So Susanna, using your acronym SHAPE, you've got a lot of information about Rachel. What are you going to do with her now using a lifestyle model approach? Yes, so uh, my screening has identified several areas that will likely lead to improved well-being if we can optimise them. And these include, just to summarise, poor sleep, high stress, low mood and anxiety, low level of physical activity and unhealthy eating habits. Now, Rachel's case is quite typical in that a systematic screening inquiry identified several areas of potential intervention. And it also demonstrates that many of the identified problems um, and, uh, are interconnected. So it's quite unlikely that only addressing one, such as her sleep only, would result in a meaningful and sustained uh, change for better. So her dysfunctional lifestyle factors, we're well into our consultation by this point. So when managing her, how are you going to do this? Yes, so by now I'm all certainly past 10 minutes mark in my 15-minute consultation. And this is only if things went pretty straightforward. And clearly there is not enough time to cover everything. So what I could do now is that at this point I would ask Rachel what she thinks about where things are and and is she able to link her lifestyle with her problems and indeed she was able to uh, make a very clear connection between her sleep her mood and, and her stress levels and also her eating behavior and suboptimal level of uh, movement if needed uh, and desired by Rachel, I can spell these out to her. So if Rachel wasn't able to make those links herself, I could ask her if she was interested in me pointing those out. And I could use a question such as, would you like me to outline the areas of your lifestyle, which if improved could help your sleep and other symptoms? Now, she has two options, right? She could say, no, thank you very much, in which case I would just leave it there. She's clearly not ready for change. And if she says yes, then I would go and explain the links as well as I can in a short time frame that I have. I would probably start by explaining the interdependent relationship between sleep, emotional well-being and stress. So sleep deprivation is known to affect mood and anxiety, and it is also known to contribute to lower psychological resilience and flexibility. It has also been shown in studies to impair cognitive function. Hence, sleep deprivation predisposes to higher levels of stress, mood problems, and anxiety. Chronic stress itself causes physiological changes, that worsen anxiety and sleep and is known to affect our appetite as well. Sleep deprivation is also known to affect our appetite by increasing leptin and promoting insulin release. So it actually is making us more hungry. 
When sleep deprived, stressed and or sad, we tend to choose foods that are high in sugar and refined carbs, as these give us instant gratification when we are feeling miserable. On physiological level, so-called comfort foods uh, cause spikes in blood sugar with a reflex release of insulin, followed by lows, which further propels the craving cycle. Chronic sleep deprivation is also known to lower basal metabolic rate and hence predisposes to weight gain. Late night binges are known to negatively affect quality and quantity of sleep. And now the role of food in, uh, in Rachel's symptoms, food doesn't only provide nutrients important for well-being, it also changes the type of bacteria present in our microbiome. There has been a lot written about the importance of healthy gut for brain health. Highly processed food has been linked with reduction in microbiome diversity and signs of gut wall inflammation. In this way, it is not only impairing nutrient absorption, but also depleting production of neurotransmitters, such as dopamine, glutamate, GABA, and serotonin, which are known to be produced by a certain species of bacteria uh, depleted by overconsumption of junk food. Interestingly, evidence suggests that most of our serotonin, for example, is produced in our gut. It's thought that more than 90% of serotonin is actually produced in gut. So the link is really meaningful. So there's a very strong link between what we eat and how we feel. Now to the role of physical activity on emotional well-being and also sleep, these are all well-documented. So apart from being one of the best stress relievers, physical activity is also known to improve mood by endorphins and other mechanisms. It also has an independent effect on sleep by increasing natural sleep pressure, as long as not done too close to the bedtime. Outdoors physical activity is particularly uh, beneficial. Uh, and if it's done in the morning, it can be specifically good for sleep because it increases the blue light exposure for the retina, enhances um, melatonin production. So um, as you can see, there is a very complex um, relationship between all these facets of Rachel's behavior. In fact, what I have just covered is just scratching the surface. There's so much more to it. But hopefully spelling out these links will result in Rachel starting to move along the stages of change cycle. And she might start thinking about what she could do to change things around. However, by now, the time is most likely up and we need to start wrapping up. So um, I would ask Rachel if she would like a script for a short-term course of sleeping tablets which is why she came in for. So if I didn't offer this, she could feel unheard and not come back. But I was uh, alongside the script, I would also offer her a sheet uh, with healthy sleep tips on it. And I would encourage her to come back soon. And when she does come back to make a double appointment so we can properly assess her mood and anxiety, as well as discuss any lifestyle changes she may want to make. 
So I could ask something like, would you like to come back and talk about this in more detail? Perhaps even start finding some solutions together. You've mentioned some fabulous points there, Susanna, and I think the one that resonates with me at the moment is food and the microbiome, and there's so much being done on this um, this aspect of health, and it's a watch a space in a lot of instances. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Rachel does rebook, which is fantastic. You've mentioned a double appointment. What sort of solutions are you going to discuss with her when she does rebook? So let me preempt this by saying that this will really depend on her stage of change and her wishes. So if she wants to embark on lifestyle change, I would outline the areas that require change again and offer her options to address these. Then we would sit down together and design a plan. In terms of the plan, Any meaningful and sustainable change of behavior needs a good why behind it. People are unlikely to change because their doctor told them so. Threats also are not effective, definitely don't have a long-lasting effect. This has been shown in a number of studies. So the secret to change is to find to and tap into the inner motivation of um, the patient to find the real why she wants to change not why she needs to change and this why is based on people's deep underlying values i call them guiding values and there are several ways to arrive at these A really intriguing one uh, that I really like using with my patients is to ask why over and over again. So, for example, why do I want to change? Uh, Why do I want to lose weight? Because I want to look better. Why do I want to look better? Because, uh, you know, and so it goes. You get the idea. Usually after about five rounds of asking why, people arrive at the real kind of underlying, this is it, this is what I'm here for. But there are a range of other ways to arrive at the guiding value. And uh, I use a range of mindfulness exercises uh, to do this. So now that we have the why, now we can actually start thinking about the plan itself and what it would look like. And it could be anything from a complete turnover of every area of person's life to doing something, say, for two minutes a week. It really depends on the patient's preferences. And the design is fluid. It changes over time. What sets a scene for success is to make it clear from the very beginning that there are no failures, just learning experiences. And that it may take quite a lot of experimenting to find the right recipe for the person. So Rachel's plan was based on her why of being the best mom she can, a good example for her kids, so they can be happy with who they are when they grow up. And she wanted to start by focusing on nutrition She was interested in trying out a Mediterranean-style diet, which has been shown to have a positive effect on mood in several studies. 
including SMILES study, which was a single blinded randomized trial conducted by Food and Mood Center in Sydney by Professor Jaka, and it was published in 2017. So Rachel's plan was to have three nutritious regular meals a day and minimize the snacking in between. She made a special effort to have a lunch break every day And she bought a few recipe books and together with her family, they chose some recipes that appealed to all of them and together prepared a little meal plan every week. So the whole family became involved in food planning and preparation and they started preparing their lunches a day ahead. So there was no room left for needing to go in search of food when in a hurry. Nutritious breakfast and lunch eaten without distraction was another thing. And that meant that she was running on a fuel that lasted her. So she didn't have the lows and and highs uh, caused by snacking. And this actually resulted in improved mood. And so she had less mood swings and was less reactive and uh, was feeling that she had more energy. More energy allowed her to want to socialize a bit more and reconnect with her husband and friends she had neglected for a while. She also started doing tap dancing with her 10-year-old daughter on Saturdays, which was both exercise and connecting with with, with her child. She went for an evening walk after dinner every day. So this happened instead of snacking once the kids were in bed. And she hardly ever felt like snacking at night. We used mindfulness and self-compassion to help her recognize signs of hunger and not to beat herself up when she gives in to cravings or when things don't go as planned in other areas of her life. And together we developed several strategies to manage boredom and overwhelm, including diaphragmatic breathing. Again, very well Um, based on the evidence. Her sleep didn't take long to improve and required very little intervention other than an Epsom bath, Epsom salt bath um, when she was feeling stressed. So six months on, she is still sticking with it. She reports feeling the best she's ever felt since uni. (laughs) And she's on no medication and has lost six kilos without feeling hungry. She's over the moon, really. Well, that's exciting, Susanna. What a what an amazing improvement with lifestyle uh, interventions and relatively simple interventions, really. Indeed. Um, but as you say, she had to address her why, and it had to be something that she could do for herself that was achievable. So, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. Susanna, not all primary care practitioners or general practitioners will have the time or the energy or the knowledge to help Rachel in this way. So if someone is wanting to go down the lifestyle medicine track, who can we refer them to? Who can we pass them on to? Or where can we find information to help us learn more? Mm -hmm, Sure. So if your listeners don't have the time or the confidence that they can help someone like Rachel, there are lots of um, lifestyle medicine professionals all around New Zealand, and these include doctors, but also other allied health professionals, 
lifestyle medicine is multidisciplinary. And so there are people from um, different fields of health sciences that have the interest in lifestyle medicine and can provide very qualified advice and guidance for your patients. Uh, in terms of lifestyle medicine doctors, there are quite a few of us around as well, and many run private clinics and are very happy to see casual patients such as Rachel. And a lot of us also uh, provide um, telemedicine consultations, so geographical distance should not be uh, a barrier. Uh, then, of course, there are health coaches uh, that, that can be accessed um, either in private or via health, um, healthcare homes. And in terms of how to find someone, if you are not personally familiar with someone who does it, well, you could hope on um, Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine website. There is a list of certified lifestyle medicine practitioners and Aslan will put you in touch with them. In terms of resources, I have provided a list of websites and podcasts to Goodfellow Unit who will publish them. Fantastic. Thank you, Susanna. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? Take-home messages. So um, I think that lifestyle medicine plays a very important role in the etiology and treatment of many mental health disorders. Systematic screening of modifiable lifestyle factors is ideal for informed care. Best outcomes are achieved with comprehensive assessment and highly individualized treatment plan with ongoing, often long-term support. And finally, assessment and management can be done as part of a 15-minute consultation or patient can be referred to a trained professional. Great. Thank you, Susanna. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP, you're eligible to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, so please log them. You'll also find a list of resources that Susanna has recommended or used in making this podcast on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for your time today and thanks for listening.